I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. Today's episode, we're talking blockchain in the law with Jacob Robinson. He's a lawyer and the host of the Law of Code podcast. A while back, I was on Twitter, and I saw a couple of tweets from lawyers and legal tech people that were kind of anti-blockchain, and it kind of surprised me. But they weren't anti in the usual sense, like, you know, that crypto is risky, or that's for scammers, or you can buy drugs with it, that, you know, the usual stuff. No, these tweets said something to the effect that blockchain technology and crypto is an overhyped, here-today, gone-tomorrow tech fad. Now, I agree that a lot of stuff in the crypto world is very overhyped. There's no question about that. But I'm a blockchain believer And I think the blockchain technology is going to profoundly change how we interact with each other for certain types of transactions. I think it's going to change in ways that we're not even thinking about now. I think this is especially true as it relates to legal relationships, and in particular, those that involve property rights. My guest today is also a lawyer, and he's another blockchain believer. It's Jacob Robinson. He's also a host of a great legal podcast called The Law of Code, and it focuses on blockchain-related legal issues. And he also hosts a who's who of crypto legal as guests. I strongly encourage you checking it out. I asked Jacob to come on the show to talk about why he too believes blockchain is going to impact the law and how it is in fact already doing so. As I alluded to, I think some people are discounting the impact blockchain technology, and I emphasize technology, might have on us, and I wanted Jacob to come on and help us sort out some of the promise of blockchain through all the hype. As we will hear, blockchain technology is already impacting how we view and can establish property and other legal rights, and for some endeavors, it will probably change the makeup of business organizations. And then there's the metaverse. Who even knows what that is or will be? But it's already presenting some interesting legal questions. You have a podcast called The Law of Code. And every episode, you ask your guest about the Genesis block. And the Genesis block is how they get into blockchain. But for the uninitiated, the true definition of a Genesis block is the first block on a blockchain. So I'm going to start with the Genesis block for you. What's yours? Start with the Genesis block. I like it. So my first introduction to crypto was back in, I believe, 2017, right after the big crash. And a friend of mine had put in a couple grand and lost about 70% of it. So I thought, (laughs) wow, this just seems like a bad thing to invest in. And then later when I was in law school, I took a blockchain in the law course. At the time, I had been reading a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, which spoke about different successful individuals throughout history. And the biggest common theme I took away was just the technological revolutions that had occurred at the time, whether it was the Rockefellers with the oil, whether it was the Gateses and the Jobs with the computing revolution. And at the time, I was sitting in this blockchain, the law course, and there was 14 students and the teacher was pretty passionate, very enthusiastic. And I realized... Who was the teacher? What was the background? It was a blockchain and the law professor. He was a law professor who had specialized in payment systems. Professor Muriam Kianif. He's at uh, University of Windsor in Canada. And at the time it was, okay, this is going to be big. And then I started to understand what the technology was. And it wasn't just money. It was a mechanism for trust. And in the era of fake news in the era of fraudulent scams going online, in the era of news, maybe not fake at the time, but being rewritten that can be edited at any time, contracts can be edited at any time. This trust mechanism to me was really what 
signaled that this is something a lot more than just a payment system and could be used in everything, even with the election. I think that was going on in 2020. This was just after. And I realized, wow, you have all this controversy, whereas if you have it on this transparent ledger, maybe this solves a lot more problems than just money. I saw the bug bit you then because I read that you created and moderated a a blockchain in the law event at, at your law school, Windsor Law. Yeah, it did. And that was sort of the the signal to me, getting the reception from people uh, on that panel and seeing the willingness of the crypto community, specifically the legal side, was really, okay, these are my people. They want to help me learn. And I wrote a post actually a couple months after that, the who's who of crypto law Twitter. Right. And I figured there'd be hundreds of lawyers. This was going to take me forever. Every lawyer wants to be a crypto lawyer. And I think there were around 40 lawyers total. And that was even more so encouragement for me to say, okay, this is a huge opportunity here. This is an area that I'm interested in, that fits my personality and has that my skills will benefit me in. And then that's when I started the podcast and uh, really has been a fun journey ever since. You say blockchain and you're interested in it, fits your skills. Do you have a tech background? I don't have necessarily a purely tech background. I have taken a course at Harvard CS50. I have done some coding here and there. When I say it fits my background, I think it's more so my personality and my curiosity and my love of learning. And I've always appreciated technology and used it. I didn't necessarily study computer science, but I've always been one of those guys who's loving finding the newest technology and sharing that with friends. And I think crypto is great at that level because you don't necessarily have to understand how elliptic curve cryptography works to use Bitcoin, much like you don't need to understand how email works at the server level to use it. And what attracted you to law school? I think you were in um, wireless technology and you did some sales. You were even a lifeguard, which by the way, there's a lifeguard shortage. So if this, if the, you know, crypto's in the dumps, you might want to moonlight, bring out your swim trunks. How'd you get into law? Law for me was a culmination of all my interests and really not something I expected to go into until after I finished my undergrad degree. So for undergrad, I did two and a half years at school in Canada, got a fast track degree there. And then I did a year and a half at school in Germany. And after I graduated from Germany, I had pretty good marks. I thought, okay, I'll get this amazing job at Google. Everything's going to be great. Didn't work out that way. And I thought, okay, is this what I really want to do? Do I want to just be some business person? And I actually felt like I didn't have any skills. To me, business is a lot more common sense than things you learn in a classroom. And I wanted to get skills and I thought, okay, well, what do I enjoy? And my favorite thing in life is problem solving, whether it's helping my mom figure out how to get YouTube premium onto her account or whether it's (laughs) helping a, a crypto company register with the Canadian government or Ontario Securities Commission. I think to me, solving problems is the most appealing thing. And it's what I naturally like to do, despite sometimes it people ask for advice or maybe don't even ask for advice and I'm solving their problems. So for me, it was solving problems, public speaking and working together with others. And all three of those things fit in the legal profession. And I'm really glad I did because after going to law school for three years, it became pretty clear to me that that was the right choice. The reason I brought you on the podcast is because of your background expertise in blockchain. And mine is also a legal facing podcast, but I really feel like a good chunk of lawyers out there are burying their head in the sand about blockchain technology. And I say blockchain technology because I'll get back to that in a second. And in fact, 
some are even like very kind of anti-blockchain, even those in the legal tech space, people you would expect to be on ahead of this curve. And I say burying their head in the sand because it's already changing the law on several levels. And we're, we're, this is very nascent. I mean, we're real early. So I want to bring you on and just, I want to talk about stuff other than cryptocurrency. I mean, that, I think what people need to understand is cryptocurrency, it's conflated off a lot of times with blockchain, but that's just one use case, just one use case. It's what it took off. But there are many other use cases and many, many, especially what we're seeing now, we want to talk about NFTs and DAOs are connected to the law. So that's kind of my opinion. I think many lawyers are either ignoring it or bearing their head in the sand about it or, or being very anti. What's your take just in, in the legal world in general vis-a-vis blockchain, the technology itself? I think that's a great question. And it is an interesting area because you have the legal profession, which is law is law. And then you have the blockchain ideology, which is code is law. And that's where my podcast name came in, Law of Code, because I wanted to look at how those two interplay. And it is a really interesting interplay. And I think the best example of that really is what happened with Seth Green. And so Seth Green was the actor. He played, he was the son of Dr. Evil and Austin Powers, for those who, who might not be familiar with Seth Green. So he owned an NFT. It was Board Ape 8398, I believe. And he licensed it for his series, The Horse Tavern. And then someone fished him. So he clicked a link, his NFT was transferred, and then his NFT was later sold to Darkwing84 for $200,000. And this really presented a great interplay between the real world legal implications and the blockchain code is law dilemma. For those who might not be familiar, I think most people are now about just real layman's explanation of NFT. It's a property, right? But explain what an NFT is. An NFT stands for non-fungible token, but I like to analogize it to a sports card where you have this particular piece of paper. It's the only one that was printed in this. It doesn't necessarily have value because it's a piece of paper with ink on it. It has value because other people attribute value to it or hold it to some sort of standard. And so when you think of an NFT, you can think of a entry in a digital ledger that points to a specific image, a specific write, a specific piece of music, really anything. The imagination is the limit when it comes to NFTs. But it's something to signify the rarity and exclusivity and ownership of a digital asset. Before NFTs, this was never possible. If you owned land in the metaverse, someone could just copy that land and you would have no record. Think of it like land titles and you have a deed to your house. The deed, the paper itself isn't valuable. What is valuable is the fact that this gives you ownership of said property. And I think that's where NFTs come in. And I think that's a good analog, not a perfect analog, but to understand who owns a particular NFT, you go to the blockchain, whatever blockchain it's on, and you find the the owner, the wallet address, it's a usually, it's a, it's a bunch of numbers and, and, and letters, but you can figure out who owns a particular NFT. I think the analog, while not perfect, is if I own a house, I go down to the county recorder's office and I do a search and see who owns, you know, my property, who owned it before, who owns next door. I, I think it's similar. You, you're going, you're looking at a, a database of ownership rights. So anyways, Seth Green buys the board ape, it gets fished, it gets stolen, it gets sold. And you were about to go into, here's the intersection of law and blockchain right here. 
Absolutely. And so we say Seth Green owned the Board Ape NFT. And that term is accurate because NFTs have been considered property, both in the colloquial sense and in the legal sense. But the important part is that Seth Green has control over them. He has exclusive possession, exclusive controllability, which is the essential prerequisite for property. And we've been through the idea that this might be some made-up collective hallucination on the internet. In Kremen v. Cohen, the court held that a domain name could be property, and whoever controls the registration controls how the domain name is used and transferred. So, number one, we know it's property. But then there's also the area where, okay, so he owned property and now it was stolen. And some changes in possession don't transfer ownership. If I gift you the NFT, well, now you have legal ownership of it. If you steal it from me, like the hacker stole the board ape, there is a change in possession, but not necessarily a change in ownership. Seth Green still had title when it was stolen and the hacker didn't. Now, if the hacker had it, Green could sue and get it back. But the problem you have with the blockchain is it's pseudonymous. So you could see where the NFT was transferred to, which wallet held it. But that wallet didn't link necessarily to Chad Main or Jacob Robinson. That wallet was, who knows? Nobody knows who owned the wallet. So when he sold it to Darkwing, this new third-party buyer, we don't know if that third-party buyer was a good faith purchaser. They paid $200,000 for an ape that at the time was, I believe, valued around three hundred dollars or, or a bit more than that. So it was a good deal, but can you really argue that they came to it with unclean hands? And if they came to it with unclean hands, well, then you get into a lot of issues where maybe Seth Green could go after Darkwing 84. So it's a really interesting area just to see how you even bring the courts in. And which court has jurisdiction to rule on something that happens completely on a blockchain? You raise a great point there. So the point of this podcast is how blockchain is going to impact and, and change the law. But still, a lot of the stuff you talked about there is rooted in past precedent, old law. Like, is he a good faith purchaser? You know, does he come with unclean hands? So old legal theories are still applicable to the blockchain. But so going back to the NFTs and, and Seth Green... The real heart of this is like who owns the rights to an NFT. There was another situation recently where that came into question. So there's Yuga Labs, which is the creator of the, of the Board Apes, bought another NFT collection called CryptoPunks. And as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Yuga Labs and the they've always said the Board Ape owners own everything, all commercial rights, everything. But the CryptoPunks was different. It was it was limited, or it wasn't very clear what a CryptoPunk owner owns. So Yuga Labs buys CryptoPunks and they say, hey, you know, you own everything now. So the point of this and the question I'm getting to is NFTs are raising a lot of interesting questions like who owns what? So where do you see it going? If I own an NFT, do I own everything? Which is kind of historically, unless it's set out in a contract that you're going to own everything. But where do you think it's going? You know, Chad, when I graduated law school, I never thought I would read so many terms and conditions in my life. And that's what we're starting to see. We're seeing the importance of the licensing agreements that is enumerated in these terms and conditions for Board API Club, for Mutant API Club, for MeBits and CryptoPunks. That's what will determine these IP rights. And that's what Yuga Labs bought. They bought the IP rights to CryptoPunks because they couldn't buy the punks themselves because they're owned by these third-party owners on the blockchain. They bought this and they plan to grant commercial rights. 
And how they do that will be interesting to see. We've seen it done by some where they grant commercial rights up to $100,000. Okay, how do you enforce that? It's a bit of an arbitrary number. There's just a lot of questions. And I think when it comes to NFTs and property, I think we're going to see a really interesting distinction between some NFTs that are CCO, that are open source, that are fully available to the public to use, create derivative works out of. And then we'll see some more traditional ones when you have, say, a Mickey Mouse NFT or you have some by specific brands, those will be much more closely guarded in terms of what licensing IP rights and copyrights they give to the holders of the NFT. And then you have to ask the question, well, okay, if I own it, can I transfer it to someone else? Will they be privy to these terms and conditions if they've never even seen them? It gets really interesting quickly because the wording of these licenses, and we're seeing this play out with, we saw it play out with Seth Green's Yuga Labs, where Yuga Labs wrote in the terms and conditions, whoever owns the NFT has full responsibilities, full rights associated with the underlying license. Okay, well, what does own mean in this sense? They actually later said, which might be contradictory in the terms, they say, the ownership is completely enumerated in the Ethereum blockchain on the underlying smart contract. So, okay, so wait a second. Ownership might be thought of as a legal concept, but whoever holds it in their crypto wallet as enumerated on the Ethereum blockchain is the owner. Well, you have those could be two different people. I could own it. You could steal it from me and have it in your crypto account. So now who's the rightful owner? And that's why it's so important when companies are working with lawyers to make sure the lawyer understands all the potential risks that are associated with these digital assets. Ethereum could hard fork. And for those unfamiliar, it's essentially when a chain breaks into two. And there could now be two, two different ledgers, two different, two, two different two, two ledgers, different exactly. two different chains. So yeah. it's like you're making a list and then all of a sudden the list goes from just one list to list A and list B. That's a continuation from the initial one. So there's so many different legal principles that could come into play and so much risk that needs to be mitigated that it's really important to have a lawyer working on this area who understands the technology inside out, especially for new lawyers. If you're just getting into the crypto space, work with someone who has years of experience who has advised projects and thought through all of these things because you'll get it. You'll learn after a few months, but it does take time. Yeah, it's funny you say work with someone more seasoned has years of experience, but years, I mean, it's, it's not many years because this is so new and even experienced crypto attorneys. And to your point, you said you found 40 of them on, on Twitter. There, there's not a lot of them out there. So there's, it, it's gray area. I mean, if we had one way to sum this up, there's a lot of gray area, but so NFTs, there's a lot of hype. A lot of people, you know, they roll their eyes for, for good reason at some level because it is a lot of hype. Someone makes, you know, and loses $100,000 within a week for literally a, a JPEG. But I think NFTs are one of the first places, and we're already seeing it, where it is going to impact the law. So, and I think it's going to, NFTs are going to be tied to real world property rights and change how they're exchanged, change how ownership is recorded. But what are some other use cases outside of the arts that you foresee NFTs, and maybe they'll be called something else later, but what do you foresee the next killer app for NFTs? NFTs are really interesting because they enable for the first time in history this proof of scarcity over a specific asset. Cryptocurrency essentially did that, but some say Bitcoin is an NFT. Sure, you can make that argument, but one Bitcoin can be exchanged for another Bitcoin. It makes it fungible. NFTs are different where this one is specifically unique. The first thing that comes to mind to me is sports collectors. We've seen that with Dapper Labs, with NBA Top Shots, NFL All Day. I grew up collecting sports cards, so I really see that one. It's funny to me that there's so many people in the space, but they have a difficult time enumerating 
examples of where NFTs, for example, could come into play. For me, that it's almost limitless. You could yep. land titles, right? You could have a D tier house that should be could and should be an NFT, which you can maybe then fractalize. Agreed. We just saw this in in New York. I, I saw it wasn't perfect what you're describing there, but someone is selling a piece of property. I think in Manhattan, it's a condo or maybe a whole building. You buy an NFT. And then later they'll do all the the terrestrial paperwork, but that's going to be sold via NFT. And I think you're, I agree. That's rights to property is the next step. And I think that's the biggest one. It's whenever there's ownership of anything that you want to track to authenticate, that's where NFTs come in. I grew up collecting shoes like Jordans, rare Jordans and stuff. I was a basketball player. I got scammed a couple of times. They printed a legitimate looking receipt. They had the original box, et cetera. But there was no way for me to confirm with a ledger to say, hey, was this the actual shoe that was made or not? And when you get into NFTs, well, now luxury goods, right? You can think, where would I want to know or want to see a record of ownership? Luxury goods, cars, maybe music, copyright, anything where someone wants to have an ownership interest could be put on the blockchain and NFTs could be used to enumerate that interest and then check. And I can see a future where the law is used to say, hey, you held that NFT. They never transferred that NFT to you. Therefore, they are the rightful owner. Yeah, it gets rid of things like cloud on title and, you know, who, who really owns it? Is it was an easement granted? You know, it's, it's there. You can see it. Anybody can see it. I mean, I guess in theory, you could go down to the assessor's office and find it now. But if someone doesn't record something, you know, it's, it's not there. But in the blockchain, for these smart contracts, for a transaction to occur, for a transfer to occur, it has to be on there or it's not valid. Yeah, and that's a great point, Chad. That brings me to the one of the biggest problems with blockchain, which is that garbage in, garbage out theory. Where, like you said, if someone doesn't record an easement on a land transfer, on a, a deed really against title... Well, now you're buying property and, and you don't know. So what if, right right now we have land title insurance, which is a bit multi-billion dollar industry. And I w- at first thought, I thought, okay, well, this will take care of that because people have crypto. It, it'll be on the blockchain. It can never be changed. But what if someone forgets to? And that's where it could be the thing where if you don't register it, just like if you don't register it with the government, well, it doesn't really exist, right? You can say you had it. You could say they granted to you, but you have to prove that either in a court of law or get the other person to agree with you and register that on title. And so that's where I think you have to register it on title in the blo- on the blockchain. And now you can get away from the land title insurance and, and other expensive, maybe unnecessary aspects of the process of buying a home, for example. You know, one other use I saw recently, just, I mean, this is really novel and very new, and I, I don't know that it's going to be a thing, but Someone was just served service of process in a lawsuit. I think it was it was a hacker. Someone stole some crypto. They were served with uh, court documents via an airdrop to their wallet. An airdrop is when someone puts you know usually it's it's done by companies or or blockchain uh, DAOs and stuff that give you tokens or coins and they airdrop the court documents saying hey you got to got to get to court you're summoned to court. Yeah, that was really interesting to see because an airdrop to me is like an email where everyone has their address and people can see it. It's a public address that people can see and anyone can send an email or an airdrop to. And what's in the airdrop can range. It can range from crypto tokens. It can range from governance rights, DAO, enumerated through tokens or NFTs. And in this case, it's LCXAG versus John Doe's number one to 25. 
which is an action for the unauthorized access to and theft of nearly $8 million worth of various digital assets held by a virtual asset provider in Liechtenstein. And they didn't know who had hacked them, but they did know the addresses of the hackers because it's blockchain. It's a transparent public ledger that anyone can see. And so you could see which wallets these funds were sent to. So because they didn't know, they thought, well, how are we going to get these people's attention? How are we going to serve them and win an argument against them? So they airdropped the token, which was a digital Ethereum-based, they call it the service token, which was airdropped (laughs) into the address and contained a hyperlink, the service hyperlink, to a website that the law firm actually created, wherein the plaintiff's attorneys published this order, the order to show cause and all papers upon which it is based. So now if you're the defendant in the case, you would click on that, you would be deemed to have been served. And that's just one novel innovation where you have this pseudonymous players that you can now actually have serve legal process on. When we come back, Jacob fills us in on DAOs. That's D-A-O. And he also talks about how legal issues may come up in the metaverse. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. Okay, we're going to get back to my conversation with Jacob Robinson about blockchain in just a second. But as I always do at this point in the program, I want to let you know that at tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every episode we do. It's got more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. I encourage you to check out today's episode page because we got links to Jacob's podcast and a bunch of the stuff we talked about. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Or you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. All right. So, so far we've talked a lot about NFTs, but another interesting outgrowth of blockchain technology is something called a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization. It's not exactly like a business entity, like a limited liability company or a corporation, but it is a way to create an organization so people can collaborate and work towards building something. As Jacob explains, because DAOs are not traditional business organizations and because they're only recognized by a few countries and states, they can present some tricky legal issues. So it's really interesting these days because you have a lot of entities springing up calling themselves DAOs and they might not necessarily fit in the term if you're taking a textual approach. A DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. So obviously you can break that down into three parts. Decentralized meaning there's no hierarchical structure, there's no CEO or chairman at the top. It's a completely flat hierarchy where everyone contributes as they see fit much like a democracy would work, where you're one person, you have one token, you get one vote. 
autonomous is where we run into a really interesting area where the idea is that because it's a smart contract that can run in perpetuity, that acts a bit like a vending machine. When you input it, it'll automatically. So with a vending machine, right, you put a dollar and you automatically get whatever bag of chips or snack you select. A smart contract ideally should run similarly, where some input, some transaction is sent to the smart contract, it automatically fulfills or operates in a immutable manner that can't be changed by a third party. And then you have an organization, which is just a group of people. And so what DAOs offer the ability of is people to work collaboratively around the world in a manner that is essentially trustless. I don't need to trust you to send me the money after I update the program in a certain manner and submit it for peer review. And that gets voted on. Say we have to get 50% of the votes to implement this new software. Once we get those votes, well, then I get paid out. And that saves a lot of problems where people are working collaboratively online and they might not either be remunerated for it or there might not be an easy way to come to consensus. How do we know that 50% of the people actually like this? Well, we send the votes in. Okay, well, what if we sent this to a central party who wants the vote to pass? How do we know that these votes actually acted in the manner we wanted? When you bring a blockchain in, typically you're sending the votes through the blockchain. It's recorded in a transparent manner. Everyone can see what the votes are. Now you can bring in zero-knowledge proofs or some other protocol to mask what each person voted for. So say you know it's me. You, I don't want necessarily everyone to know what I voted for, but we can still accumulate the votes that way. Essentially, what it does is it provides people an easier way to work collaboratively, specifically on projects that are existing online. So this is much harder to use DAO when it comes to real world assets because of the lack of government recognition for them to sign real world contracts. And it runs that you run into that principal agent problem. The biggest sale that the DAO offers, the biggest problem that it solves is it intends to address that principal agent problem as well as aligning users with owners of businesses. So when I use Facebook, they own my data, right? They sell my data to a third party. That's how they make money. When I use something like a DAO, for example, the idea is I'll be rewarded in the native DAO token for using it, which I can either sell or I can stake or I can provide liquidity for. I can do something with it that will provide me value. So it aligns the user with the owner and it actually turns the user into the owner in a much better way than we see now with Web2. That's a good point to maybe back up and explain what a DAO is. It's not exactly like a, a, a corporate entity or a business entity. It's not like an LLC or a corporation per se, but it has similar attributes. So let's say you and I want to create some software and instead of creating an LLC and getting a you know, membership agreement or create a corporation, send out shares, we create a DAO. We invite anybody to participate. And to show their ownership, what they'll do is they'll get, you know, usually governance tokens or some sort of token showing they are a participant slash owner in this DAO. So it's another way of getting something done collaboratively. But you touch on something very interesting there. Let's stick with my example of we're creating a software company. Let's say the software is the new Twitter or the new Facebook, whatever it is. We're going to have users. There might be liability, you know, there might be disgruntled DAO members and stuff. So this is where law is going to touch this. You know, where do you get sued? You know, am I, are we fiduciaries to each other? Things of that nature. How are those being addressed right now? There's a couple states, which we'll talk about in a second, and countries out there that have recognized DAOs and have some statutory law behind it. But in general, there's no law governing these DAOs. So how, how is that handled in the real world? If two DAO members have a dispute or a DAO member's a bad actor and, and, and defrauds a third party, how is this stuff handled? Where are these questions answered? 
And a lot of them will be answered in a courtroom. We've seen there's a case in California where his DAO is being sued and being considered a partnership, which would make all the members of the DAO liable for the actions. And that goes back to the idea of there's DAOs in name only, and then there's actual DAOs. Bitcoin, to me, is an example of a DAO because it's a decentralized, there's not one owner. It's autonomous. If five miners go offline or 100 miners go offline, it's going to continue to run. And it's an organization. It's a group of people working together to process transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can't serve papers to Bitcoin. You can't get legal recourse against Bitcoin. You can't get legal recourse against Bitcoin miners. They're just solving math problems that are helping validate the proof of work. So it's a great example of where the law is going to have major issues when it comes to a true DAO because you don't have that figurehead. And I spoke to Commissioner Peirce, the episode released yesterday, about this. And I said, SEC well, Commissioner, SEC the Commissioner. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce about this. And that's what she said. She said, when it comes to regulators, they want someone to point to. And when it comes to the law, you want someone to point to. You need to hold someone accountable. You can't hold the Bitcoin protocol accountable because you'll never get any judgment against it. Or if you do get judgment against it, you'll never get any funds or any sort of any ability to really find them or, or anything like that. And so when it comes to a real DAO, a true decentralized autonomous organization, the law can't really touch it. The law can touch people and recognize persons. And if a DAO is neither, then they'll have issues. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing these DAOs through Wyoming DAO legislation, there's Tennessee DAO legislation, we're seeing them register because it's difficult to build something decentralized from the get-go. And so these DAOs start off as centralized entities, they issue tokens, they start to expand, but while they're in that stage, they do deal with the law when it comes to liability, when it comes to contractual rights, when it comes to fraud, when it comes to securities issues as well. So you just mentioned that. I think Vermont's another one. So the, the point being there that if you and I create a DAO and we have 100 people, 1,000 people, whatever, historically under the law, we are all partners because we don't really have an agreement. We're not limited liability. We didn't organize under some corporate umbrella. But states like Wyoming, Tennessee, Vermont, they're recognizing DAO saying, hey, this is a legitimate organization. There's going to be limited liability if you do these things. That's kind of the intersection right there. The law is what you're saying that there needs – the true essence, like if you go back to historically, crypto is no government, code is law. You know, we, we're just going to do this to completely autonomous, but it ain't that easy. And that's why you need regulations at some level. But another thing you, you didn't mention there too, and I think you were about to, is taxes. Taxes for DAOs raises a really interesting point because to get a token, maybe you have to pay. Maybe you have to pay for ownership, maybe it's airdrop, whatever. But these governance tokens and other tokens, sometimes DAOs have more than one token, they have value. So how's that taxed? I mean, do I owe tax? I own one token in DAO and some whale owns $5 million. How's tax handled? And that's the million-dollar question, Chad. That's a question that a lot of people are choosing to ignore rather than find an answer to. And like anything in law, it depends. Taxes can change depending on your jurisdiction. Some airdrops we, we were talking about earlier, people got airdrop tokens from the Ethereum name service, for example, that were worth tens of thousands of dollars. And under U.S. law, I believe the income is taxed at the moment you realize it. And so you get this, say, a thousand tokens. But what's the price at? How do you determine an accurate price, especially when some exchanges only have one percent of the total float available? You know, one percent of all tokens available are on this exchange. That's probably inflating the price quite a bit. I don't think it's right for people to pay tax on number one unrealized gains and something they got as a gift that they may have no intention of selling. I think they should be taxed when they sell it. And I think 
For me, what I always tell people is the best approach is that front page test. If what you're doing, you don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper, you shouldn't do it. And when it comes to taxes with NFTs, crypto or anything, you might be able to get away with it this year. You might be able to get away with it next year. But I guarantee you in five to 10 years, once the technology gets better and the government starts finding out ways to, number one, you have to maybe KYC your wallet, or there's some way for them to look back through the blockchain, throughout history and see what value did you realize? What income did you realize? You will be liable for taxes just like you would when it comes to capital gains with stocks, with real estate, with anything else, because crypto is considered property. And if you sell property for a profit, you must pay capital gains tax. I think what people are trying to do is they're trying to separate the Dow Treasury, the Dow's money, maybe another entity is not the correct word, from the actual the Dow members. Like you know, I've seen uh, people suggest trust, like put it in a trust, have a trustee, or others have said uh, UNA, UNA, UNA. Uh, is that the Unincorporated Nonprofit Association, Association. Or something? But you create a UNA to deal with money, and then you have you know the Dow separate from it to do you know the day to day stuff to further the goals of the Dow. Are there any other ways you've seen or proposals, how to insulate Dow members from being taxed on money they may not really have or have an yeah, obligation to? It's a great question, right? Because you have this Dow treasury that people put money into. They buy either buy the governance tokens or the governance tokens gain in value. And if they are considered a partnership, well, then the partners would be liable for their own respective tax because they're being deemed to have this income when they don't necessarily have that. And I think the unincorporated nonprofit associations that David Kerr and Miles Jennings suggested are a great option. There's a lot of different options, and it really does depend on the DAO and how functional the DAO really is. But I've seen novel innovation when it, not novel, but really DAOs as LLCs, um, especially investment DAOs where they register in Delaware. We see a lot of foundations. Like you could argue Ethereum is a DAO, the Ethereum Foundation acts as their sort of banker, and they have a foundation in Switzerland. So we're seeing these foundations, we're seeing these trusts, we're seeing all these different entities pop up in the most friendly jurisdictions. And that's going to put a lot of governments on notice because, hey, you want to collect taxes on this $10 billion DAO, have favorable legislation. Maybe you'll get a bit less than they do in some other states or some other countries, but you'll actually be able to collect it. And right now there isn't a great mechanism because most governments don't accept crypto as payment for taxes. And so that would make it difficult for a true DAO to pay their taxes because you'd have to transfer to fiat, which means you'd need a real life entity, which means you'd run into that principal agent relationship issue where you'd have to trust this agent to act on behalf of the DAO. But I think that's coming, especially when it comes to tax revenue. Governments can be pretty creative in uh, <laughs> in, in finding it. Yeah. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. But for now, it is quite difficult for DAOs to pay taxes. And it's a question that still is being answered. You know, the other interesting thing about DAOs, too, is when we started talking about this, he said, hey, the allure of the DAO, at least facially, is this is democracy. You could have a million members and we're all going to vote and decide what the future of this DAO is and we're to, what even what the aim of the DAO is. But in truth, what we've seen is that participation is very low. So another thing to point out, too, is generally DAOs are set up. Everything is voted on. If we're going to spend money on X or we're going to develop this software feature or we're going to create this website or we're going to do promote this cause, it's all voted on. But historically, what we've seen is participation is very low, very low. Just like voting turnout in, in a lot of states and, and federal elections sometimes. And that is a huge problem. And we've seen the corporation develop for hundreds of years since the UK government started granting charters to companies like the East India Trading Company. 
And it's developed for a reason, and it's because it works and the hierarchy works. When you have a CEO making decisions and you have this top-down format, it does work in certain industries and in some, it's better than others. And it will be interesting to see how DAOs develop because DAOs have been around since around, I believe, 2016 was the DAO hack. And that was the first sort of on-chain big DAO that raised tons the of DAO, money. The DAO, the DAO, D-A-G-D-A-O, the DAO, the DAO. The DAO. And if for those who want to learn more about it, if you look up the SEC report on the DAO, it gives you a great background on it. But essentially what we're seeing is DAOs experimenting with different governance structures. And I think ultimately what might be the best approach is the bicameral governance system that we've seen the U.S. adopt, where you have Congress, you have the executive branch, you have judiciary, right? And you have so many different checks and balances in place. Because what happens when you have a straight democracy what happens if a whale, a large token holder, accumulates 51% or 61, whatever quorum is needed to vote, but then votes themselves 100% of the treasury? And that's what we've seen happen because there's no legal recourse really for something like that because are they breaking the law? They're just following the rules that are enumerated on the smart contract and that every DAO member agreed to abide by. And so we're seeing a lot of experimentation, a lot of mistakes, but I think ultimately we might start to move away from a pure democratic voting system when it comes to one token, one vote, and something more so where it could depend on your contribution to the protocol or other vested interests you might have, or there might just be a limit on certain things that voters can do to avoid issues like that in the future. Yeah, I think DAOs are here to stay. I'm very interested in them. Obviously, it's not for every endeavor you want to do, but I think it's going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be way different. But I think they're here to stay as a, for lack of a better term, a business entity or organizational type entity. Another thing that I think is may not be huge tomorrow, it's, it's still, it's, it's gaining traction, but I think presents any kind of legal issue you can think of in the real world is the metaverse. This is going to be a thing. It already kind of is a thing. I mean, my kids have been playing Minecraft forever and doing, you know, all these these games for forever. And at some level, that's kind of a metaverse. So what do you see the legal issues vis-a-vis the metaverse? The metaverse will be really interesting because whenever you bring in value, legal problems begin to exist. And with the internet, it was more information was transferred easily. With crypto and Web3, it's this value transfer. And NFTs allow you to own specific property in the metaverse, which means it could be stolen, which means you might want to legally go after someone. So property law is a big one that will go through enormous change to recognize metaverse property and how do you ascertain the value and all these different things. How do you force someone to give it back, etc.? Property will be a really interesting one There's also the criminal aspect where what if someone commits a crime in the metaverse? And to me, it's such an interesting question because there was actually, I don't know if it became a case, but there was a complaint that someone had had where they'd been sexually assaulted in the metaverse. And can you be sexually assaulted? Right? There's the question. Can you? Okay, you can. So now what would the fine be? And how do you, do you punish someone in the real world for a crime they committed in the metaverse? And how do you judge the mental impact that it had on the victim? Will it be proportional to something that happened in, say, the real world? And I find it funny when people use the real world compared to the metaverse. The metaverse is just as part of the real world as we believe it to be. The only difference is it's digital. Like when you send someone an email, that still happens in the real world. It's just online. And I I think the metaverse is the same thing, which means the metaverse is going to have enormous issues. I still think the hype right now is completely beyond what's there. I've played around in Decentraland. I've walked through. I got bored. I I got bored. I don't know about you. It's so boring. I I got bored. (laughs) 
it's so boring. It reminds me of RuneScape without the <laughs> yeah. fun aspects that, that I that I enjoyed growing up. And so I think we are a few years away, but these are really important questions, Chad. And I think these are things that we're going to start to see parse out as cases arise. And that's the only way the law can be decided by following this approach rather than trying to anticipate all the potential issues ahead of time. All right. While we're on the future, let's close on the future. I think, especially now the crypto prices are down in the dumps, you see certain people kind of like rooting for crypto to fail and blockchain to fail. I mean, you and I are obviously believers, but I think empirically you can see it. It's not going away. I mean, this is, again, going back to the whole point of this podcast is the, the technology itself is very important. It's going to change how we do things. But I've already kind of said why I think it's here to stay, but why, why do you think it's here to stay? And why, why should lawyers pay attention to this, even if this is in their area of practice, but why should they pay attention to it? I think they should pay attention to it because it is the next revolution of the internet. At the time, you know, in the early 90s, early 2000s, people didn't see the future of the internet, especially in the legal profession, right? People are still writing memos and right. by hand and, and all these different things. Now we're doing Zoom calls. Now we're doing Zoom meetings. There's a great quote. It says, we overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and we underestimate it in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same with crypto. Blockchain in 10 years, we will see almost every legal agreement stored on a blockchain. I think so too. Because if I have a legal agreement with you and I hold it with, say you hold it, well, what's to stop you from editing it, especially if it's digital? Even if it's physical, you can easily copy and paste it. My biggest thing with lawyers when it comes to the blockchain is trust. Blockchain is something you can trust that can't be, well, depends on the blockchain, but the ideal blockchain, you can upload a document, it'll stay there, parties can reference it whenever without being able to change it. And as we move into this digital age with increasing technology that has, you can make fake people, you can make fake agreements, etc. You need some sort of measurement to say what is a fact and what isn't. And blockchains enable that. They also enable novel types of ownership that we've never seen in history before, as well as new assets, where you can have something that purely exists in cyberspace that is valuable because it's scarce and because other people want it. And those are just three things that blockchains enable that have never before been possible. And when it comes to the legal profession, whenever there's money involved, and that goes back to the quote, people are going to fight for these things. And lawyers who are knowledgeable about the space will have a huge leg up over those who don't. And those who don't will be in pretty dangerous waters to be advising clients because of how nuanced this technology is. Jacob, appreciate your time. You have a great podcast, which I'll link to on the episode page, but if they want to find it, they search for Law of Code. But you also have a great newsletter just in general. It's legal facing, but it's more, you know, it's, it's blockchain crypto in general. If people want to subscribe to that, how do they, how do they get to that? There's the Law of Code newsletter, which touches on the different uh, podcasts that I have coming out on Law of Code, where I interview people like Securities and Exchange Commission or Hester Peirce on these interesting issues. There's also a couple newsletters that I follow and I, I like to advise on, but really all the credit goes to the authors. One is Around the Blockchain by two law students. They do a great job of really summarizing all the legal developments that occurred over the past week in the crypto space. And there's also the Crypto Law Newsletter, which is by a professor at Cambridge. And she does a great job summarizing the recent developments as well. It's such a fascinating space. Highly recommend checking both those out and subscribing to Law of Code podcast. Appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much, Chad. This was a pleasure, man. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. 
If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.